Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ in the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Uh, Hey, this is Matt Tipp. And uh, well, my brain knew to talk, but my vocal cords were not complying. Cooperating. They are now. I'm back on it. When you... When you get you're to be there. a man of Matt's age, some sometimes your body starts this breaking is down. How, this is how you're using too much oxygen for a man in your condition. condition then. You need to <laughs> take deep breaths and pace yourself. We have a long intro to do. Long intro. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, no, I, this is how you do professional podcasts, everybody. Uh, Matt Tebby mm-hmm. here with my friends Christy and Ben. Hey, yo. Hey, hey. hey yo. Christy uh, has a dog that's on the struggle bus. You guys. You were just telling me. stroke. She had a stroke and none of her limbs are working. Like she can't walk. That's but but here's the good news is that not the good news, but I guess <laughs> the progress that's happened is that yesterday she couldn't use any of her limbs and she couldn't blink and she couldn't use her mouth. And today she can blink and she can eat and she can drink. So like the vet is okay. like, she's making progress. So the hope is that in a couple of days she'll be able to walk. Yeah. I don't mm. know. That's sad. Anyway, it's super sad. But I, I was thinking of uh, making a joke about how some days I wish my dog could just do that instead of uh, eating its own her own poop and, um, you know, uh, constantly demanding <laughs> attention. But that would be in bad taste. So I'm not going to mm. make that joke. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, real, real quick, you guys. I have a question for you. Yeah. If there was – if you could relive one day – of your life over again, either to redo something you want to redo differently or to redo something that you want to experience again. Oof. What would it be? Mm. Oof. I need That's some thinking question. time. Yeah. You ask the question. Why don't you answer first so that Ben and I can <clears throat> think a little second? Um, well, I would, I'll pick a positive one. Uh, do you guys remember... Uh, the U.S. women's soccer team, when they won the World Cup for the first time, and I may have talked about this with you before, Brandy Chastain um, celebrated by ripping her shirt off and like sliding on her knees in her sports bra across the field. Yes, I do. So a lot of people remember that because it's sort of an iconic picture. But that Mm -hmm. happened in the summer of 1999, and I was doing theater in New Hampshire at this summer stock theater. And that was like right around the 4th of July. And there was this huge 4th of July barbecue. We had a parade and then a barbecue at this person's house in the mountains who had a live band and ordered food. And I was there with my friends. And that day was amazing. Like Mm -hmm. uh, just from like fun food, um, watching the women's team win the World Cup. Uh, I I was in the mountains of New Hampshire uh, at some millionaire's house, oh, like, and then it was just wonderful. I think about that, I don't know, once a month, and I think Aww. that was such a great day. Oh, so, I love it. Yeah, that's what I would relive. I'm gonna go like total, uh, total girl sentimental, I think. And that is, I think I would, positive one, I think I would relive and redo like the day I got married. Because my, it was an awesome day. It was so fun. My photographer, however, got sick and sent a replacement. And Paul and I only have 
two pictures of just the two of us from that entire day from the photographer. And one of those pictures has his finger in it. It's like back in the day when you actually had film. <laughs> yeah. So like right. I have very few pictures of Paul and I from that day. And we didn't have a videographer. And I have uh, thought at least, at least once a year, I wish that it was like a movie I could watch so that we could watch it every year on our anniversary. So I would redo it so that I can record it. Yeah, that would be nice. That's sweet. That is sweet. What about you, Ben? You know, I, uh, mine is also marriage related. Um, My wife and I, to celebrate our 10th anniversary, which was many moons ago, um, 16 years ago, I think, 17 years, 17 years ago, I think we're 27 years married. But when we celebrated our 10th anniversary, we had just had our fourth kid. Um, And so we were, you know what I mean? Like we'd been uh, just just keeping our heads above water parenting, right? And we're in our thirties. I think just barely. I think my wife turned 30 that year. Anyway, um, we'd had our four kids and this was our first time away from like all of our kids for an extended period of time without, that wasn't just like a date. Um, and so we decided to fly out to San Francisco. We rented a convertible and we drove no down highway one. Oh, so um, fun. You know, we went through Carmel, Carmel by the sea. We went through Monterey. We went all the, all the way down through Big Sur, just with the top down, you know, and stopped at little tiny little bed and breakfasts, little places along the coast. Um, and just like got reacquainted with one another. We really did. Um, which was a, it was just an important time for our marriage. And it was, uh, it was just lovely. And so that's when I fell in love with California. So I would do that again. In a heartbeat. That's fun. That's super fun. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I, I'm sure there's some uh, negative days I want to redo, uh, but I like that we all picked positive things. Yeah, me yeah, too. That's fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Christy especially likes that. Yeah, yeah, right. It's good. Um, well, speaking of Christy's, we have a guest today, Christy yeah, Guthrie Sim. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. on the podcast to talk about her book, Survivor Care: What Religious Professionals Need to Know About Healing Trauma. This is part of our series on trauma. If this is the first one you've heard, I encourage you to listen to all of them. We're trying to get our hands around what is trauma and how do we how do we handle it? How do we mm-hmm. deal with it faithfully? And Christy has been on the podcast now twice, and she's got incredible uh, stuff to share about it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it. Should we? Yeah, let's just do it. Yeah. Let's launch. Hit hit the play button, Ben. What do you do? Yeah, that's yeah. I just end the I uh listener. This is how podcasts work. Just All we do is recording an intro. I'm just going to send these files to our producer. He's going to edit them together, post it online, and then we're going to publish it. And then Tuesday morning, um, it'll show ben, up in your podcast feed. So, just hit hit play. Hit play on hit the play. Uh, cassette recorder. <laughs> hit play on the on the uh, yeah yeah. Um, so yeah, here we go. Hitting play. Dr. Christy Gunter joins us again on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. She's the Director of Client Services at an agency that serves families of domestic and family violence in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Christy is also the author of the book we're chatting about today called Survivor Care, What Religious Professionals Need to Know About Healing Trauma. She's earned a doctorate in global health and wholeness, a Master of Divinity, and a Master of Social Work and has over 500 additional hours of specialized training in violence, assault, trauma-informed care, and other related topics. Christy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be Um, here. You know, we're going to talk about your book, and I just want to say right at the beginning that uh, the book is incredible. The appendices, I don't know, there's like a half dozen (laughs) of them, two dozen of them, I don't know, there's a lot of appendices. Those are worth the price of the book. (laughs) Um, so maybe we'll, maybe we'll, cause she has one Ben and maybe we we can quiz you here since I know I read this book and, uh, I read the appendices, but, uh, she's got, uh, she's got top 10 things that pastors don't know. Mm, I like it. I like it. That are, they're most shocked to learn. Anyway, you did, uh, Christy, you work primarily, well, tell us about your primary clientele, who you work primarily with on a day-to-day basis. Right now, I um, am director of client services, so I am working with five 
programs, uh, two domestic violence shelters, um, one in each uh, city in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, I work with a housing program for rapid rehousing uh, to create sustainability. A legal team, we have two attorneys and two legal advocates. A uh, advocacy team, so that you're greeted at the door, have all sorts of things that we do in those um, the advocacy roles, and also a counseling team. We have seven counselors on staff. Wow. Oh. It sounds to me like you have five jobs, not one. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. So tell me a little bit about then how this book came to be and maybe why you decided to aim it at religious professionals. Sure. So I did my doctorate research in healing after intimate partner violence. And as I was doing that research, I came across uh, hearing several times over and over and over again, I told my pastor they didn't believe me or uh, my faith community just told me I needed to try harder or, you know, reason after reason after reason. And not just necessarily, we decided not to say Christian professionals. We said religious professionals, because this also was occurring in lots of other faith communities as well. And so we wanted a book to be on seminary syllabi, to uh, be a resource for ministry leaders, for anybody at faith leadership, chaplains, uh, to have a starting point, and maybe we can cause a little less harm if we all work together. Yes. Yeah, I, Ben and I, we've chatted about this on this podcast before, but it sure does feel like, and I know you you have an MDiv as well. Is that right, Christy? I have what? An, a Master's of Divinity. Is I do. that right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we got master degree programs for training in ministry, and I never heard the word trauma one time. Mm-hmm. Or, or the words domestic violence. Right. Um, and I, and it feels like maybe until 2014-ish or so, that was okay. Like, it was okay. Like, most people didn't know about trauma. But it feels like the last 10 years, Christy, it has been another master's program for me and other religious professionals to get up to speed on what the heck's going on. Yeah, yeah. And we've learned a lot about the brain in that last 10 years, too, and how the brain operates in trauma, how it's supposed to operate, and what we can do to work with the brain instead of against it. Well, I want to get to that. You have a whole chapter uh, on that. Uh, you have a whole chapter on that, and it's, it's fascinating. But I, can I back up a little bit? Sure. Um, because you have a you have you have sort of spiritual degrees and you've got more clin- clinical degrees. How did um, how did like violence and trauma become a special interest to you? Well, honestly, it's through personal experience. And so uh, I lived in a domestic violence shelter myself, and mm-hmm. I actually have a, it just fell behind my desk today. But normally, I have a. <laughs> um, uh, paper that says Christina is a victim of domestic violence. She is currently homeless, et cetera, et cetera. And I keep that on my desk because all the decisions I make and all the situations I look at, I want that to be my lens Mm. by which I direct all these programs. Mm. So so that you aren't the expert, but you're like a a co, you you understand intimately what these Mm-hmm. I viscerally understand in my body. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've lived it, but I also did the work and went to school and studied it and yeah. keep updated in trainings. And so I balance the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's thanks for sharing that, uh, Christy. Um, maybe as we begin, then uh, we're using this word trauma. And I think everybody comes at it a little differently, or maybe. Uh, I like hearing, what do you mean by this? So I, we can fill out our understanding of trauma. So when you say trauma, what do you mean? What are you referring to? Sure. So uh, trauma is a response to a stimulus. So for one person, a response could 
be nothing. Right. It didn't feel like anything. But trauma is this overwhelming, you can't run, you can't fight, you can't fawn, you can't socialize your way out of it. And you're just stuck. You're trapped. And so this is how we see some people are traumatized by the same event and some people aren't. Some people are trapped and unable to act and others aren't. And so that is what trauma is, is that moment where you're overwhelmed um, in your capacity to be able to respond. Usually there's a perception of closeness to death. And when I'm thinking of trauma, I mean both physical death, the literal death, and also a social death that can be uh, incredibly traumatizing as well. And Yeah. um, Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, this is a, so you're talking about then, uh, there isn't a list of traumatic events somewhere mm-hmm. that is true for every person. That's correct. But you're talking more about how our body absorbs, interprets, and reacts to stimuli. Yes. Yeah? So so a parent uh, who is verbally abusive mm-hmm. could be traumatic for one person and not for another. Possibly. <laughs> okay. I, I am absolutely convinced, and I talk about this in the book, that... Uh, there's no such thing as it wasn't physical abuse. Everything's physical abuse because it affects the brain and the body and how you behave and how you react. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, there's no just verbal abuse that didn't make a difference. I'm thinking more, um, uh, you know, for 9-11, you know, all these kinds of events, you'll see some people who are extremely traumatized yes. and others who aren't yeah. because we react different. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um you, you in your book you talk about some of the identif- like factors of trauma like how do we identify trauma and how can, what are the symptoms or what are the ways it presents itself could you name a few of those that are like important to look for just be, as we become conversant with trauma we can begin to notice and maybe name things that otherwise we wouldn't name as trauma so are you talking about the internal experience those kind of things because i have that kind of list and then i also talk about external, what it looks like externally, um, that might yes. be counterintuitive. Yeah, I, th- I think both are helpful. Both those yeah. lists are really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so internally, uh, I talk about how um, some of the most, uh, well, I talked about the experience is overwhelming, perceiving you're close to death, but also this sense of agency is lost. Mm. You know, agency is the ability to exert influence and choice over uh, what happens, and trauma is that moment where you don't have that agency. And so you, you lose this sense of agency and almost this trust in yourself um, because no action's imaginable. Yeah. Um, you also have this uh, sense of meaning that's violated. I have that uh, on this list too, because your whole understanding of the world and how it relates to you is altered in extreme trauma. Uh, You know, it's usually an intimate partner or a family member oftentimes. And that really shifts. You start to feel isolated. Uh, Maybe you question yourself and your own competence. Mm -hmm. And maybe even the divine's ability to act in the world. Yes. And now, a word from a sponsor. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Just speaking personally, Christy, it was my overreaction to not getting what I wanted and then learning that, that I, was, I was experiencing powerlessness mm. and then learning why that elicited rage in me. Like it was learning to notice that and name that that helped me come to the point where I actually investigated, is this a traumatic response? Mm. Mm. Um, and so that feeling of powerlessness, mm-hmm. and then whatever our body does, fight, flight, fawn, right, freeze, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. it was really helpful for me to not just be like, gosh, I'm such a jerk. I have a bad temper. And I think it's really important, if I could interject right there, that it's not a cognitive choice that we make to react to tr in this way. Sure. Yes. Uh, it's more midbrain. Cognition is these frontal lobes up here where we get to make decisions and choose. Yeah. The further down you go in that midbrain, amygdala, et cetera, you're reacting purely out of survival. It's a behavior that happens <laughs> automatically without any thoughts. And yeah. I just did a training with my team here recently, and I said, you know, when we don't go around walking into walls, right? Because we've learned we don't have to think wall, 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 because we've learned we don't, there's walls there. We don't have to walk into them. We don't even have to think about it anymore. It's that kind of a thing where yeah. it comes out from that automatic response. I, I'm going to die. I'm, something's going to happen here. Yeah. I, I got to react. Yeah. Yeah, that that kind of thinking I think has been so helpful for me to have compassion both for myself when I react in those ways, right? Because I, I think I, I I used to the only way I knew to think about that was to moralize those choices, mm -hmm. right? And so for myself and for others, and so I would either judge others or judge myself, like man, why are you being such a big baby about this, you know, or, or that kind of thing. And but realizing that's like I'm not actually choosing to do any of these things, but there, there's a wound that's mm -hmm. deep within that needs to be tended to. That's why, that's why I'm flinching like this. That's why I'm reacting mm -hmm. in a way that is, feels like odd or, or strange. And it's been really helpful um, for me. So I appreciate you naming that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. P part of uh, developing some kind of way to navigate the territory of trauma and abuse is, is learning how to name what is abuse? <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, how do I know what abuse is? Mm -hmm. And then what is maybe just disagreement or, right. or conflict? Can you, right. and you, 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 you do a pretty good job, I think, of mm -hmm. laying out broadly the basic contours of what constitutes abuse. Can you, can you help us here then? How do we, how do we become people who don't call every hurt feeling abuse, <laughs> but yes. are still able to name abuse and, and take appropriate responses. So my definition that for abuse is any continual series of actions, words, or innuendos that devalue the humanity of a person through power and control. Okay, so there's lots of pieces to that. There yeah. is the um, power and control factor. That's the most important. If you've got two people claiming they're abused, who holds the power? Who's objectified? Uh, who feels like they have no choice in their behavior? Um, who feels like they have no control over their life? Um, mm -hmm. So that's one. And then also this devaluing of their humanity, this dehumanization piece mm -hmm. where the, the person isn't a person and they're an object, right? Mm -hmm. No, uh, Lundy Bancroft calls it no different than kicking a stone in the driveway. Mm. Uh, and then also this continual series, right? It's a pattern, right? Yeah. It's not just one time punching in the face. There's a pattern and a habit of um, devaluing a person through power and control. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Maybe this is why um, another reason why you wrote this to religious professionals, because mm -hmm. the church environment has a baked-in hierarchy of power and control, right? right? Yeah. Um, and so this is something that maybe as a young pastor, like 20 years ago, I couldn't see the power I carried as a pastor. I just didn't, I didn't appreciate how powerful I really was, regardless of if I was lording it over people or domineering regardless of how I behaved, sort of there was some kind of, maybe much like a therapist or a social mm -hmm. worker, there's inherent power in the relationship with people we work with. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you share a little bit about um, how power and privilege operate in churches and what, what pastors should know maybe about their power and, and how that relates to trauma? I, I think you generally summed it up pretty well there that the 
position itself comes with power and, you know, who he holds, he or she who holds the power holds responsibility as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the words, the things that we say from these positions of power uh, can do serious harm or they can do healing words. And so when I had a pastor tell me once that, um, that my suffering of this abuse was God's gift to me to help me to learn something. Mm. And that caused a lot of damage for a long time. Yeah. And so we, I think we need to remember that, you know, I'm not the only one there's, this happens a lot. (laughs) We don't understand that um, we can use our power to create opportunities for healing and wholeness. Mm, yeah. And I, you know, I w- I'm assuming you mean this is personal conversations, but it's also like what we preach about, yes. right? Like the, the, like the whole gamut, like we, we can cause harm even inadvertently. You know, I think the, the people that pastors with the best of intentions mm-hmm. can cause harm if they're not sensitive about how they frame issues. So, you know, what that pastor told you, um, it sounds like that was a, that was a personal mm-hmm. conversation, but saying something like that from the pulpit, but where you're trying to like, you know, wrap your th- maybe theological mind around, well, how does it, how does, what does suffering mean? And we're trying to be comforting, but we actually cause harm. Like it's, it, I think we need to be sober minded about that. About the- And I've seen it in jokes a lot too. Um, mm. There was somebody once who joked from the pulpit that uh, about divorce. And I was like, oh. I burst into tears. I didn't want to oh. get divorced. That is not my plan for my life. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I think there's, uh, and then there was an, another situation where um, somebody made a joke about marrying off their daughter. And, you know, like these kinds of things have different layers to them to yes. someone who's been abused. Yes, yeah. I was just, I just remember this. I was at a golf outing last Thursday and someone made a domestic violence joke to me. Oh. Uh, it was a, okay. So it was like 95% men uh-huh. and it, it was, we were talking about hitting a golf ball or something and somebody made a joke about like hitting women uh-huh. and it, it was super, it wasn't super overtly gross, meaning like you know, I'm going to punch a woman in the face. It wasn't something like that. Sorry. We're going to put a trigger warning at the beginning of this podcast for anybody. <laughs> to listen. But I remember, I remember, I, I remember immediately noticing it, Christy and being like, you know, you could tell that joke in 1993. Should you? No, but you could, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you could do it on primetime television, maybe even, but you just can't do that in 2023. And I think, I'm noticing too, just in your story about the pastor, like you say, Hey, I'm suffering physical abuse. And the response is, um, God can use abuse for your growth. Mm -hmm. Right. There's what I like about your book is it's, it's not just, it's not just focused on how to identify the problem, but you know, the, some of the largest words on the cover is healing trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you maybe use that interaction if it's not too personal? What what does that Christine need in that moment from that religious press professional to begin healing from trauma? So I think one of the first things is admit that you're not trained therapist, right? So you don't want to go mm-hmm. into this as a religious professional if you don't have the training and the licensure like you do. Uh that's the first thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, second thing is it, it's not hard to be empathetic, compassionate, and connect with people when they're hurting and crying in front of you and saying, yeah. you know, this is happening to me. It doesn't take a lot of effort to say, wow, I'm really sorry. Yes. That sounds like it's really hard. Yes. Just that validation that I'm not crazy. It's right. not in my head. Because here's the thing. People who are abused would love to be actually. Like, maybe I'm making it all up. That'd be fantastic. Because then it would be in my power to fix it. <laughs> right. But when it's not, mm. you have a hard time believing it yourself, right? You need other yeah. people to believe it too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I mean, it's when you say it out loud, Christy, it sounds really simple. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I, I just want to highlight that because it is simple. But I, I think that so many, just speaking as a religious professional, there is so much pressure that I feel, and I don't know where this all comes from, but there's so much pressure that I feel to have an answer or to mm-hmm. like fix a problem or to, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? To make just like, like a, like put a bandaid on this, like make somebody feel better. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, that's some of that's probably just personal stuff, but some, some of it I think is a cultural kind of you know, expectation that we sort of pick up like, Oh, you, if somebody shares something with me, like the most important thing is for me to like help them wrestle with it theologically when it's actually, no, actually the most important thing is make sure they know they were seen and heard, yes. empathize with them, validate their experience and then go from there. Who knows what they need after that, but start there. I just want to emphasize that highlight it. One of the things I picked up the most from social work is to lean into the discomfort. Mm, <laughs> Sometimes yes. that means silence and silence doesn't feel good. Yes. I can remember in one of my internships, uh, I had a kid who had just lost a family member that I was uh, working on uh, counseling with. Yeah. And he made me sit there for 15 minutes and not say anything. And now <laughs> suddenly everything seems easy. <laughs> So, yeah, <laughs> um, but there's something about that silent moment that makes us feel like we have to resolve it and fix it. Yeah, but that's not always what's needed. That kid just needed me to sit there, yeah, and hold the space. Yeah, yeah. and that's the action: is holding the space, the container for the feelings, and to let people be felt. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I love the fact that you're saying like exp- know your limits and validate their pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm thinking too of of the times in ministry when I've failed to see trauma. Usually, is it when someone is hurting? It's usually when somebody is angry. Flash so down. yes, I think for me, this is just for me. It's so easy to take other people's angry personally anger personally, especially when it's directed at me, especially when it's full of you did this and you did that and you did this and you did that. And, and something that your book is um, making me want to explore more, this isn't totally foreign, but is to just remember that um, usually it's not about me, <laughs> right? I can still be a, I can still be a jerk, right? But usually it's not about me. And many people are reacting out of a, out of something that they're not in control of. And the people you feel safest with are the people that you want to let that out at. Yeah. Mm. You know, so maybe it's really a compliment. (laughs) It could be. Yeah. It could be a good sign even. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Well, I want to talk a little bit about domestic violence and abuse Um, because I, I have this hunch. I don't know if you've looked into this, Christy, you obviously would know more about this than me. So I'm sure you have, but I don't think it's on many pastors radar. I, I don't, there's been research done on it. Uh, I used to have files and files of it when I worked uh, constantly with the religious community, but most don't really think about it. And it's one in three women, so one in four, depending on where you're looking. And yes. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So this is a perfect time to Here we are. be doing it. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one in three, one in four, that's bananas. Right, that's, that's supported, right? I, I sit with people who say, yeah, I would say not that many who have sat in my chair and told me about the abuse have actually reported the abuse. So it's wow. one in three, one in four reported. Uh, yeah. So I wonder then, um, as a pastor, as somebody who wants to be able to uh, f- like face this domestic violence and abuse. Cause I think most pastors think, you know, these are all Christians, right? Nobody's, nobody's physically or verbally abusing anybody else here. Right. Um, but it's just not true. It's just not true statistically. So how, how do we then, how do we then begin to develop, uh, the uh, culture that where it's not verboten or taboo, mm-hmm to bring up things like domestic violence and abuse? And then how do we begin to notice and recognize signs of it? I think some of the 
greatest ways is to use October as Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Put stuff in the bulletin. Partner with your local agencies. There are some amazing agencies that are doing this work every day and uh, are the experts in this. They'll probably come and talk, (laughs) do a little segment. We have an education team that goes out and does talks and whatever, gives out information. Sometimes they'll have little cards with information that you can give people, put on the back of bathroom doors. Um, And then when you're preaching, remember through the lens of what it would be like for someone abused. So maybe even tipping your hat to that, you know, as you're uh, preaching a certain passage, remembering that Not in every case, right? (laughs) You you know, putting caveats or um, disclaimers when you make grandiose statements about, you know, marriage should be for life. Um, Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. 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 I've remembered a few times as a pastor, and this is a confession. Ben, I know you want to get in here. Uh, we do not want to make. Well, him I do angry. want to hear your confession. We do though, not want so. to make him angry, Christy, because it's just not, <laughs> it's not pretty. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, I rem- I remember essentially calling Christians to stop focusing on other people's stuff, whether it's a sexual promiscuity or whether it's you know militant Muslims, whatever we want to focus on out there. Um, and I rem- I've remembered using divorce statistics to do it. Mm. Right, ba- basically saying like the divorce rate for Christians is the same as the divorce rate for non-Christians, mm-hmm. right? And we we actually think it's a covenant, you know. And I'm I'm not explicitly thinking I know what will shame domestic abuse survivors. I'll bring right. up their divorce and hold it over there. I'm not thinking that at all. Right. I'm I'm thinking like Christians stop scapegoating other people. Let's focus on let's focus on our own marriages, our own mm-hmm. unions. But but. That comment, that way of framing it without, like you said, acknowledging or seeing that person mm-hmm. can do some damage in their life. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It preys upon the shame they already feel, maybe, because of the stigma. Yeah. So, anyway, that, yeah. thanks thanks for sharing that, Christy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You are forgiven and absolved. Yes. Thank you. Priestly duty. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> Matt needs to be forgiven often for things. And so. <laughs> This is really helpful. No, <laughs> it's such a burden on Ben. I'm sure oh, he's man, glad that I you this guy carried his time. cross for a few moments, yeah, Christy. No, that's I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm very grateful. No, uh, joking. All joking aside, um, yeah, you know, I think as a preacher, you know, and a pastor, um, I think one of the things I'm taking away that I, you know, I hope if there are you know preachers and pastors listening, um, you know, one of the exercises that you that good preachers do, I think, is they think about who they're talking to, right? We're not just, I'm not just putting a sermon on the internet. I'm talking to people in a room and I know these people. We go, you know, we're, we have a life together. Um, these are people in my congregation. Um, and I think it's worth remembering, this is what I'm taking from what you're saying. It's worth remembering that I don't actually know everything about yeah. the people that I'm talking to. And there may be people who carry all kinds of secrets, right? And so domestic abuse, violence, being one of those things that maybe there's somebody that I'm talking, maybe I, you know, maybe there's a visitor, maybe there's somebody out there who is suffering and who hasn't spoken up. And if I can just keep them in mind, it'll help me not to say something harmful, but on the positive note, I think it could also help them, help give them the courage maybe to speak up and to seek help. You know, if they can hear from somebody who's preaching that this isn't normal and it's not right and you shouldn't, that's not your fault. Like whatever it might be can be, maybe, maybe that is the nudge that they need to say, you know what, I got to get out of this or I got to talk to somebody or I got to, I got to figure this out. Speaking on that line, if I could just add one thing real quick before I forget it. Sure. Uh, several pastors have said to me, um, they came out to me, uh, they decided they wanted to get out. I took them to shelter and they're just back with it. I did it. Mm. I tried. Yeah. I'm sick of this. <laughs> when on average, it takes someone seven times to leave. And so yeah. I call those first six practice. Mm. You practice leaving. Um, you see if you can make it on your own. And maybe it's not safe, so you come back. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I always want pastors and religious leaders to know that too. That uh, I have two masters and a doctorate, and it took me five times to leave. Right? Gosh. 
It takes time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life, so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us towards holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives, to learn how to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I was, I'm thinking back to our interview we did with Justice Revival. Um, ben, we talked about the Equal Rights Amendment. Oh, right, and, yeah. And part of that conversation was about how difficult it is for a woman to leave mm-hmm. an abusive partner domestic partner because of the economic and living situations. And somebody just today said to me, and I, this is, this is bananas. Like in some States, it wasn't until the late 1970s that women could have credit cards in their name. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Right. (laughs) Right. And so now we have all the, and the shelters didn't start until about that time either. And it was a, you know, this is not an old movement. This is a fairly new thing of right. <laughs> of being able to provide safe housing and stability for women. Yes. Oh, and men gosh. when necessary. And men, sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, um, maybe as we wind down here, Christy, um, I'm wondering if you can think about, and maybe it's even in your own practice, these teams you lead that you mentioned like having like a welcome team that welcomes people Mm -hmm. into who may be experiencing trauma. Mm -hmm. What are some commitments or practices or habits that you cultivate culturally uh, that, that create an open, welcoming, inviting, safe space for people dealing with trauma? That's a loaded question. Uh, (laughs) Lots of things. I probably won't even think of a third of them just right now. Uh, we have our our entryway uh, is comfortable. We try to make it smell nice. Uh, but you have to be careful with the smells too because that can be a trigger. Uh, we try to make sure that everyone feels welcome and not just a particular type of person. Uh, we have multiple languages available, not just English. Uh, we have uh, diversity in our staff. Uh, those are some of the ones I can just think of right off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this, this, this topic, Ben, keeps coming up with Christy about seeing people. Yeah. And seeing people and learning how to see people that aren't, obvious to you or aren't explicit in front of you. Mm. Um, and I, I think that I think that part of my awakening to trauma um, in these last 10 years has been, yes, this is how quoting that divorce statistic would be received by somebody who had the choice between um, being abused or getting a divorce. Right. And I just didn't know they were in the room. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know they were there, right? Um, so I, w- one of the things I'm taking away from this is is like learning how to s- learning how to see beyond what's obvious mm-hmm. to you. Yeah, mm. yeah. And in ben, the book, ben, I talk you? about a few signs and symptoms of what to look for. <laughs> yes. yes, you do. Um, yes, that's helpful to know as well. Um, what were you going to say, Matt? Sorry. I was going to ask what what are you what are you picking up what are you noticing that you want to name? Um, 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's just sort of um, I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling this as as a pastor, um, and yeah, just sort of feeling that weight of um, mm. not just uh, uh, feeling the it's a good it's a good weight. I feel like it's a good yoke, <laughs> um, to, you know, to take on. Um, just that my job is not only to respond to the people who are in front of me or the, or the person, person, the survivor who does come to me. Um, but also maybe to, to have a lookout, right. Right. To be a, I don't know, the metaphor I'm getting is, uh, from the old Testament, like a watchman on the walls, like somebody, somebody who can spot maybe when something is going wrong and maybe ask a question or pull somebody aside. And, um, so anyway, I'm, I'm feeling, a. I guess I'm from this conversation, I'm feeling this um, reminder, this kind of weight, this responsibility to uh, watch um, for, you know, for people who might be being harmed, who maybe don't even know that they're being harmed. Right. I was going to say that maybe they don't even know yet. Maybe it's not in their awareness yet. Right. And so, yeah, kind of what I'm taking away. Yeah. I mean, just to put a exclamation point on that, Christy, I was an adult when I, when I realized that yelling at people was abuse Mm -hmm. because that's the only way my family knew how to like, you know, you didn't really care about anything until you started yelling about it, you know? And that, that was, that was the family dynamic I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, Oh, people don't like it when I yell at them, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I, I mentioned the appendices, top 10 things pastors are most shocked to learn. Top 10 things not to say to a survivor of violence. Mm. Uh, top 10 things to say to a survivor. I mean, it's worth the price of the book in and of itself, Christy, because sometimes sometimes we default to like pithy tropes, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and I wonder maybe as we close, one of them is like, I think two things are true. We can all agree as Christians that, um, we have been forgiven and it's Christ-like to forgive. And number, and number two, forgiveness is used as a cudgel to harm people who've suffered abuse. Can you speak a bit to, uh, as a pastor, as someone who longs for people to experience forgiveness, extend mm-hmm. forgiveness, how, how do we misuse the demand to forgive in these situations. I have so much to say on the topic of forgiveness. One of these days I'm going to need to write Mm. an article because forgiveness is what happens when two equal parties come together on the same level. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some ways or there are some situations where you can do the very best you can. I forgive as much as possible but that person can still hurt me and I have to be on guard. Mm -hmm. Uh, That person can still take away my kids. That person can still drag me through court proceedings. I still have to be on guard. Yeah. And so I think it's really wise to remember that pushing people into forgiveness that's not healthy for them or healthy for their survival not just just survival like living day to day, but survival towards healing. Um, I think we were pushing people into this concept of forgiveness when what they really need. I can remember I had a pastor once. Um, she was amazing. She was amazing. And she said, you know what? It's okay if you want to hate him. It's okay. Mm. I don't care. You're allowed to do that in front of me. <laughs> it's okay if you want. Wish he was dead. That's fine with me too. And I can remember reacting like, no, I don't want those things. <laughs> but she gave me permission right. to be where I was and yeah. not force forgiveness long before yeah. I was ready. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's such a beautiful thing. We talk a lot about God being so real that he meets us right where we really are. And Christians spend a lot of time denying feelings, denying their reality in order to be moral. Uh, and what we see, I think, from Jesus, what we were trying to recover from Jesus is this incredible permission to be where you really are, because that is ground zero for healing and transformation, mm-hmm. right? So repression of hate doesn't heal hate, mm-hmm. right? Another way to say that. You have to actually face it 
befriend it if you have it. Um, anyway, Christy, this has been a delight. Uh, your work is really important to the church. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, appreciate appreciate you sharing parts of your story with us and also writing this excellent book. The title again is Survivor Care, What Religious Professionals Need to Know About Healing Trauma. Uh, Christy, you have a personal website. You want to share that so people can find you online? Sure. It hasn't been updated in a while, forgive me, but it's uh, drchristysim.com. Yeah. Sometimes I don't update my personal website either. <laughs> Um, thanks so much for being with us again on the podcast today. Thank you. It was all I could do, Ben, not to read the top 10 things pastors are most shocked to learn. Yeah. Why didn't you? Why, why, why did you feel the compulsion to not do it? I wasn't compelled not to do it. I just chose not to. I took uh, dominion of my body and exercised self-control. Okay. But now uh, I want to read them. Say, okay, I want to read right. them now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I bring you that up why because you, did it? you wanted to bring it. You wanted to do it later. <laughs> I just want to see how I want to see how shocked you are as I read. Okay. This. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, Listeners can't see my face, but I'll try to make I'll try to make some shocked noise. I'll try to indicate audibly <laughs> my, le- you my shock level. I'll try to do that. <laughs> Uh, okay. So uh, I'll read them, but I won't read how she expands on them. So, um, and this is one of, I just, I just counted. There's appendix A through M in this book. There really are a lot of useful appendices, right? Number one, many incidents of abuse are not illegal. I'm trying to express, I I think level five, Okay, level five out of 10. Uh, physical abuse is much more than being punched, shot, kicked, or stabbed. Number three. Yeah. She mentioned that a little bit. That, yeah. This uh, is one. Uh, that's fascinating. This is the one. Number three is one I wanted to ask her about, but I didn't. Uh, again, self-control. Good job, me. Uh, number three. Couples counseling is not a good idea when power and control is an issue. Yes. This is huge. Yep. Uh, number four. The forensic exam is more about medical care than collecting evidence. Number five, the consequences of violence, even death, are the result of the offender's actions and no one else's. Yes. Number six, protection orders require additional effort to obtain approval. Additional beyond? Like extensive paperwork. I see. And it's hard. It's hard to do. It's like, hard to get, get ready to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number seven, forgiveness is one of the most painful topics for victims. We touched on that a little bit. Yes. Uh, number eight, most crimes of domestic violence and sexual assault are not reported or prosecuted. Hmm. She has here, one of my colleagues is an adult women's domestic violence counselor, and she guessed that only about 10% of the women that sit in her chair have ever reported that violence to have happened. 10% hmm. of the people in a domestic violence counselor chair mm-hmm. have reported it. Yeah. How many less who aren't sitting in a chair? Right. Right. So it never got to that point for them that they felt like they had to do something that drastic. Yeah. Here's one that, here's one that did shock me, Ben. Um, Protection orders, divorce decrees, and custody arrangements should be kept on file in the church office. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. Just to maybe if you have to prove something or. Um, Yeah. If there's an active protection to order, the police will need it if they're called to the scene. Oh, interesting. There's a custody arrangement. The child's department needs to know about it. You know, all this stuff. Interesting. You okay. know, like if um, if somebody yeah. drops the kids off at kids ministry. Right. And then tries know? to pick them up or. Yeah. It's like somebody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and this sense. and this last one is um, hold on to your butt. Okay. Uh, number 10. Two people cannot abuse each other. Abuse happens when one person exerts power over another in order to control the outcome of activities. Thus, one person abuses another person. Yes. I, you know what I thought of? I thought of uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. That's immediately what I thought of. Did you think of that too? I did. I was <laughs> because like, that, that's somehow, that's people framed it that, that way. That they were abusing each other. Right. Yeah. And I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious how that would work out. This is where I'd want like to talk through stuff with Christy. 
if only she was available for the podcast um, to talk through this kind of <laughs> well, stuff. With we Christy. have her on every week now. So <laughs> I know. It's fine. Um, but I was thinking like, you know, if my four-year-old throws a fit and right. flails his arms and hits me in the head, mm-hmm. that's not abuse. Right. Right. If right. I throw a fit. Right. Even and those, hit, and yeah. it hit the four-year-old in, in the head with my arm. Right. That's abuse. Yeah. So not that's kind of what violence, she's getting at. That's what she's getting Not all violence at. is abuse then is one way that we maybe say that. So two people could get into a violent altercation and it wouldn't be abuse. Yeah. Two people is, can get into a fight. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is what Sarah Schulman, she uses one of these examples in her book, Conflict is Not Abuse, which by the way, I highly recommend as well. Mm-hmm. She talks about how in intimate partner violence in Canada, um, she says, and she works primarily with the LGBTQ population. She said there'll be one person who's very, very abusive mm-hmm. towards the other person. And then the other person finally um, fights back or pushes them away right. or uh, uh, uses force to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. The abusive person gets hurt, calls the police on the person who protected themselves, and the person who protected themselves gets taken away in the cop car. Yep. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she she ratches that up to the geopolitical level as well. She says this is, you know, Israel and Palestine. This is like yes. international conflict works this way as well. Yes, um, yes. But yeah, um, yeah, which is I, an abusive action. Yes. Like le- using the police as your- The power of the state yeah, to, yeah. to enforce your way. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I bring these things up just to say like, we we have intuitions on a lot of things. You know, mm-hmm. she mentioned like not walking into walls because they hurt us. Um, but but our intuitions and instincts on power and abuse and control are just not so great. Right. They're just not yep. so great. Yeah. And I'm speaking as a white, powerful, cisgendered, able-bodied, yeah. uh, ADHD, neurospicy man. Right. Yeah. And I, right. And they're, they're not great probably like for good reason. Like we just haven't, uh, we haven't had to reckon with these things. And so we're just, you know, we're just learning to. Yeah. So I feel like there's like, you're not bad if you don't know about this stuff. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, but you are ignorant. And so go ahead and learn, you know? Yeah. Go go ahead. ahead Let's let's learn as fast as we can. Yeah. You know, how, how to recognize these power dynamics that have so far eluded us that have, you know, kept people in harmful situations. Like let's learn, let's learn how to recognize when the abusive person is, you know, becoming the victim. Let's learn how to recognize that. Yeah. You know? So. In Jesus' wow. name. In Jesus' name. For Jesus' sake. Yes. So. Well, that'd be great. That'd be great if we, if we did we that. Could, Let's do if it. we did that. Let's do it, everybody. Yeah. Um, hey, did I tell you that uh, I talked to my dad this past weekend? No, you didn't mention and he, it. he told me that when he dies... He wants his ashes pressed into a record. Wow. That's unusually hip for your dad. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know him a little bit, so, yeah. It was his vinyl request. <laughs> I knew something was coming. But <laughs> vinyl request. It's pretty I good, right? they, I actually started thinking about that. I was like, could you do that? Yeah, right. Or would, would it just, it probably couldn't. It would just crumble. You'd probably have to mix them with like real vinyl or something. Yeah. By the time we pass away, Ben, Lord willing, uh-huh. maybe let's say 30 years, uh-huh. um, 40 years for me, 30 for you. Um, wait, 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 wait. I, 30 years? Oh, yeah. What would I, what would That'll I, be a good so, run. You'll be 78. 78? I want to I live into my 80s or 90s, man. Well, maybe you 78, will. 78, jeez. Maybe you will. Um, 40. I'm calling it 40 years. Okay, 40, 40 for you, 50 for me. Um, <laughs> Why do no, you get more years? I, I just keep giving myself more years. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I, th- I, th- I wonder what they'll be able to do with our carbon. Mm. Like, I really do wonder what families will do with the carbon of their deceased people. Because yeah. they're, let's just say a quarter, cent- a half century. You've got to think, or even like the DNA of the deceased people that there will be some options of transhumanistic consciousness transfer or some kind of uh, hybrid bio thing 
Like we're going to grow a tree that has dad's DNA. I feel like, I feel like I've read some sci-fi novels that have ideas like this in them. So this is pretty far away from Dr. Gunter's research. Yeah. I don't know how we got here. What what was your your silly joke? All right, everybody. All right. Until next time. Yes. Peace. Sayonara. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.